book uh, attributed to David, who wrote probably half of the Psalms. And uh, if you're not have your own Bible, it'll be helpful for you to have one to look at. So there's a should be one in front of you, page 524. So Psalm 145. I want to suggest this morning that we are all in a war. It's the kind of war that military commanders would call pitched battle. And pitched battle is an intense, closely fought contest. And there's absolutely no exceptions, whether you're, you're middle-aged or middle school, you're in this war. And it's not only a battle that you happen to be fighting and I happen to be fighting this morning. It's a pitched battle that you and I have to face all the time, every day. It's a relentless war, and every epic battle deserves a name. And I'm going to call this the glory war. You and I are in this pitched battle. We're in this epic battle about glory. And and every human being is hardwired for glory. We're hardwired to praise or to be in awe of or worship something. We're, We're all in a place where we have this heart that desires to be connected to something that's bigger or someone that's bigger than ourselves, as uh, Bruce Springsteen famously said, everyone has what? A hungry heart. Everybody here has a hungry heart. And everybody is in this glory war trying to figure out what's the glory, what's the weight, what's the praise, what's the thing or person that I'm going to make the object of my worship. No exceptions. So if my premise is correct, and I believe it is, the question then is, what will you use or what will you chase or or what are you going to focus on that's going to satisfy that hungry heart? You see, worship isn't optional. Every human being was designed to be a worshiper. So everyone is going to worship. What's optional is the object of your worship. So every person is in this glory war. What am I going to connect to? What am I going to chase after? What am I going to focus on that's going to be this object that's bigger than myself? Everyone's going to worship. The question is, the options are, what is the object of that worship? And no doubt that you have noticed that God has placed us in an awesome world. And there are some truly awesome things about creation. And I, I wonder... What attracts your attention about creation? Uh, Maybe it's the beauty and power of just creation itself. You're the person who loves the mountains, or you're the person who loves the outdoors, or you're the person who likes the ocean. And you just love to be in creation. You just love to see its power, its beauty, its majesty, its awesomeness. I, I have a boat, and when I take my niece and nephew out of my boat, uh, occasionally we'll run out of the jetties and we'll go out in the ocean. And we do that just to get this tingling feeling of like, wow, look how big this is. This is so much bigger than us. There's just something about looking at this awesome creation and these 
big rolling waves. And then I'll say, let's jump off the boat. And we all jump off. And we're all like, whoa, this is incredible. And it's a little frightening. And you're saying, okay, note to sell. When pastor wants to take my kid out, <laughs> we, we make it back. But there's something exhilarating about that. There's something about saying, this is so big, this is so beautiful, and you just love it. You, you're awed by creation. Maybe you're one of these people who's re, who have recently had a child, a baby. And you are in awe that you had anything to do with this creation. And, and if if I remember correctly, when I had my son and daughter, I could... Once they were asleep, I could just stare at them. I mean, I might be frustrated that I can't get any sleep, but once they fell asleep, I'd just stare at them. And I would just notice every eyelash. I would notice every time their chest went up and down. I would notice every wrinkle, every fingernail, everything. And I was just in awe of this person, this person that I had some part to play in in their creation. It was, it was totally absorbing. Maybe for you it's the sound and smell of a steak. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say this at 11, you know, just, but just that sound, that sizzle. So I'm really sorry if you're a vegan because you're missing something <laughs> really good. And, and you, you, you hear it, it's coming off the grill, it's going to your grill. And you're like, yes, life is good. God is good. There's got to be a God if we have stuff like this. Maybe it's just so amazing. Maybe it's some piece of music. You just get captured by a song and, and you just want to hear it over and over again because it, it's not just the words. It's not just the, the beat. It's, it's, it kind of gets in your soul. I, I really love listening to smooth jazz. And so I get on my Spotify, and I get a few smooth jazz things. I know you realize that that didn't seem to fit, but it does. And Nancy can tell you, I'll just be sitting in the dark listening to this one song over and over and over again. I don't know if any of you do that. But when I find one, I just hit repeat, and it might be like a half an hour of repeating the same, you know, four-minute song. It just somehow just takes you over. And you just love it. You just get all in. And so God's created an awesome world. Yet none of these created things are intended to be ultimate things. They're all signs to an ultimate thing. They're all designed to, yes, capture your attention, to, to give you all those feelings that you have when you're, you're in the ocean or you experience some music or you see your child or whatever it is. But, but they're all designed to sort of point you to the final destination that, that's the person who's the designer of these things. Behind these things, there's a, a designer who, if he can elicit this kind of emotion, this kind of energy towards this object, then imagine what he must be like. It's all a sign pointing you to his glory. But, but you and I have a, a problem, and it's, it's a significant problem. It's a problem that the Apostle Paul diagnoses just with perfection in Romans chapter 1. 
This is how he talks about it. Human beings claiming to be wise became fools. Okay, how did human beings who are claiming to be wise become fools? Well, he answers it. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God, of the weight of God and all of what he's made and who he is. We've exchanged that glory for images to make, made to look like mortal man and other created things. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the, than the creator. This is really an excellent definition of sin. Humans exchanging the glory of God for what God created. We've exchanged uh, God, the designer, for what he's designed. And if he exists, that's fine. But I really prefer what he's designed, not the designer. And unfortunately, because of our sinful condition, uh, we find ourselves in, in a glory world. You, you see, the things that God has made as signs make terrible destinations. The creation, as great as it is, it's a great sign. It's a terrible destination. As great as a stake is, it's a great sign. It's a terrible destination. As great as your child is or another human being, it's a great sign. It's a terrible destination. And what we've decided to do is we've traded out the designer. We've exchanged him for what he has designed. So now we wake up every morning. We have these hungry hearts. We're, we're restlessly trying to connect ourselves to something or somebody bigger than ourselves. And because of our sin, most of the time, the object of our affection tends to be ourselves. The Most of the time, what gets exchanged is God's image for your image. And you're the king or the queen, you're the one that runs everything, and now the world has to sort of operate around you at the center. You might think about this, a few of you who might know this. It's like the, the single parrot in the cage. You know this single parrot in the cage? The parrot is a very unique animal. It's made fiercely loyal. And almost always tends to connect with one other parrot in a monogamous relationship for life. But most of the time when you see a parrot, where is the parrot? In a cage by itself. Unable to do what it was designed to do, which was to connect to another parrot. And so the owner nicely does what for the parrot? Puts a mirror in the cage. And guess who the parrot falls in love with? Himself. And when you as the owner try to reach in there and grab that mirror, too bad. Fingers are going to be lost in that effort. You you see, sin is like a cage. And we've caged ourselves in from the one who we were originally designed to connect with. And we've caged ourselves in and we've put up a mirror and we've fallen in love with ourselves or what is creation, not the creator. So we're in this glory war, and we are filling our hearts mostly with ourselves. But thankfully, thank be to God, thanks be to God, the gospel frees us from the cage. 
This is the great news. This is also another sermon that I can't give you right now. But the, the gospel opens up the cage and allows you to really appreciate creation, but use it as a sign to point to the creator. And now your, your focus shifts off of yourself and off of the creation. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Jesus died so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Jesus died so that those who are alive no longer, they're not waking up in the morning thinking about themselves and their world always revolving around them. Your focus shifts off towards him. That's the gospel. Now, even as followers of Christ, we still have to fight in this glory war. Just because you've you've trusted in Christ doesn't mean you still don't feel this particular battle. And I want to suggest that that one of the most effective weapons in this glory war is meditation on the greatness of God. You want to have success in the glory war, you've got to really see that God is great. And he's a lot greater than you, and he's a lot greater than anything in all creation. And you really have to know that. It has to be a part of your mental makeup. And this is where Psalm 145 comes in. Because David, this very last song, it's like he's, he wants to say, all the other songs I've written are great, but this one, you've got to really know the greatness of God. So I want to read that to you, and I just want you to listen carefully. Think about these phrases we're not going to be able to cover them all, but he, this is what he says, Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. And they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures forever throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and he raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and give them and, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name. 
forever and ever. Amen. There's 22 verses here. Now, your version may have 21, but you'll see in verse 13, there's sort of an italicized verse there that really should have been another verse. And the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. So this is an acrostic. So David is basically going from A to Z in the Hebrew language. And every verse has a, you know, an A and then a B and then a C. And you might say he's praising God from A to Z. He's, he's trying to cover every base here about how great God is. And we can't possibly cover the whole Hebrew alphabet. You wouldn't want me to. But I want to focus in on just a few thoughts here that might help us in the glory war. First, verses 1 through 3. I will extol you, my God and King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. The first thing I want us to notice, the first thing that's helpful in fighting the glory war is the discipline of focusing on the awe of God. You notice David here, you see what he says? I will. Now, David, he's had his own battles in losing the glory war. And I don't need to tell you about those battles. He's had his own battles where he was the center of the universe. So he has to get up every day and he has to say to himself, I will extol the Lord. That's going to be the first thing that comes out of my mouth. I will bless his name. I'm going to do it every day, just not on Sundays. And this is the, the critical first step in trying to win the glory war. Daily disciplining yourself to think about the greatness of God. Now, now here's one of the questions that I'm going to ask you today. And this is going to be a question we ask all the way through the series on the Sermon on the Mount. And that is, what's the controlling narrative in your mind? Now, you may not know right away, but I'm going to ask you to think about it as the weeks go on. There's some kind of storyline, might just be a phrase, might be an event that happened, but there's some kind of controlling narrative in everybody's mind, and they live through that narrative. And I'm asking you to try to identify what's the controlling narrative, what's the controlling story in your mind. That's part of this glory war. And for David, he's disciplining himself to say, the controlling narrative in my mind is the greatness of God. I I need to have that as the main frame of my life. I'm not saying the other things aren't good. I'm not saying the big problems aren't really big problems. I'm just saying the thing that overarches all of those things that help me in the glory war is God is great. And I've got to have that. I've got to daily discipline myself to have that in the forefront of my mind. Let's take a high school girl. A high school girl, she wakes up in the morning at 6.30, whatever time it is. Do you think she's immediately engaged in a glory war? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I feel for high school girls. Do I look good enough for everybody else? 
do I look good enough just for that one other person? What, what are my friends, my, you know, girls have complicated relationships. I'm sorry, girls, but what are my other girlfriends going to say today? This one was nice to me, but this one wasn't nice to me. What is my mom or dad going to say? What if I don't have a mom or a dad? What kind of narrative do I have going through my mind at that point? What about a coach? What about a teacher? What about my grades? What about my future? You just, you, do you see the glory war is relentless for this person who gets out of bed? And it never ends. They may say, well, the controlling narrative right now when I get out of bed is how do I look? Can I show up at school looking like this? And then when they get to the first class, it's another glory war. It just goes on day after day. It's, it never ends. Some time ago, I found myself in a difficult emotional situation. And it was, it was difficult. I couldn't minimize the fact that it was difficult. But I noticed every morning for about four or five days, as soon as I woke up, before I, was, I thought, I was thinking. Does that make sense? It was just the first thing that came to my mind was this phrase, I hate. I didn't have to think about the situation. I woke up and I said this phrase in my mind, I hate this situation. You think I was in a glory war? Oh, yes. It was like an iron fist on my heart. And I had to decide, is God greater than this situation or this situation is going to be the controlling narrative of my mind? Does that make sense? And I can tell I lost, I lost, I lost, I lost a lot in the glory war. What causes a mind to shift off I hate. Do you see that? That became my functional way of living. So I get to my family and I've got the cloud of I hate. I get to my work. I got to the cloud of I hate. I've got this cloud following me everywhere I go. How do I begin to get out of that? And I would say by focusing my attention on the greatness of God. See, what had become great in my life is this situation. So great that I didn't even have to think about it before it became controlling. And I had to discipline myself to say, God, you are great. And this situation stinks. And I wish I wasn't in it. And I hope it's over today. I can still think all those things. But even if they're not, it's not going to have an iron fist on my heart like it had. And David is telling us we have to have the discipline of focusing our all on God. Verse 5, you have to meditate. You have to wake up and exchange I hate for the splendor and majesty of God. And so here's my challenge for you this week is that you would wake up and you would read Psalm 145 every day for a week. And it would just be the first thing you did. I, I just read it. It took how long? Two minutes. So even if you have your quiet time and some other time of the day or you're studying something, okay, fine. Just, I'm just saying, when you get out of bed, before it's like brushing your teeth. Before you brush your teeth, just say, I'm going to read Psalm 145. I'm going to get this truth, this narrative to begin to be part of what's in my mind that's going to help shape how I think about everything else. All right, you, you good on that? You wrote that down? Psalm 140. I'm going to call you every day. 
think about the college student who wakes up, some of them five minutes after the class has started, <laughs> rushing to class. If you could just two minutes early and put Psalm 145 in your mind, what a difference that would make. So, so how do I begin to win the glory war? I, I purposely meditated. I've got to tell myself I will extol God. Secondly, I've got to recall God's character. Look at verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Now, and, and you must notice this logic. Your praise is tied directly to your view of God. Your praise is tied directly to your view of God. If you believe God is great, you're going to praise great. But, but if you believe God isn't great, if you have a low view of God, you're going to have a low view of sin. You're going to have a low view of worship. One scholar said this, great theology of God leads to great doxology of God. Doxology means praise. Great theology, great understanding of God is going to lead to a great praise of God. And some of us here have a low view of God. Some of us don't really think about God that much. I mean, I think a lot about him right now because I'm in the worship service, but just as the weeks, days go on, I just don't think about him that much. That's a low view of God. And there's a few, I hate to say this, in a painful situation, you don't think God's running the world very well. And you'd love to give them some advice on how to run it. That's a low, low view of God. So you've got, you've got to understand, you've got to believe that God is great. Secondly, look at verses 8 and 9. These are maybe the most well-known verses out here of this psalm. The Lord is gracious and merciful. This is such a great verse. Slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love. He is good to all. His mercy is over all that he's made. I want you to listen carefully because I don't have time to unpack all this and we'll do some more of it in the Sermon on the Mount. But anger is often a sign or a gauge you can use that you're losing the glory war. Now, it's not always, so I don't want you to hear that. But quite often, anger is a good gauge to use to say, I'm losing the glory war. So, is, is one of your narratives, I'm angry. You can smile a lot and still be angry. You just wake up angry. You're angry at your spouse, or you're angry at your kid, or angry at your boss, you're angry at your church, you're angry at the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, you're angry at Fox News or CNN. You're, ang- you're just angry. What, what would your spouse or your coworkers say about you? You have frustrations. Because you have unmet expectations. And these unmet unmet expectations create like a low boil 
So they either get to some point and then you just explode like a volcano, or it really doesn't take that much because you're at a low boil. So any one more just, it's always everywhere I go, I'm, I'm angry. Angry people are often gripped by the belief that they're always right. Here's another way to say it. Angry people are in awe of their own wisdom. See, I am angry because I know what's right. And this should be happening. And I'm in awe of my own wisdom, and you should be too. And you should fall in line. I'm not speaking to everybody here, but I'm speaking to a few people. You wouldn't say it that way, but what you're saying is what what when I look in the mirror, I see myself in my infinite wisdom, and when you don't follow after that, then I get angry. How do you combat that anger? This is a long journey here. One way to start is verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger toward you. See, think about this. Would you want to review the raw data on how many times you've disappointed God? That you haven't lived up to his expectation. Let's just get the raw numbers out. Would you want to see that list? Uh, No. I really wouldn't want to see that list. Yet God, who is always right, this makes him a lot different than me and you. He's actually always right. And yet he sees you, and when he sees you, he's slow to anger. And when you see a God who's always right, who continues to try to be loving, steadfast love towards you, when you turn around to the world, it should inform you on how you should treat others. That's the beginning of unpacking that big, big thing. So why do you need to read Psalm 145 every day? Because of these kinds of things. I've just given one example. Finally, and I want to close here, you notice in this uh, psalm, Every generation is required to commend or declare God's glory to the next generation. It is the responsibility of the people in this room to tell the next generation, God is great. They are not going to learn it any other way past the work of the Holy Spirit. But he's saying, the way I'm doing this is through other people. I'm using these people to say, you've got to tell the next generation, these people who stood up here, they're telling the next generation, God is great. God is great. Notice the repetition. Verse 4, one generation commends or shall declare. Verse 7, they shall pour forth your fame. They, verse 11, they shall speak of your glory. Verse 12, make known to the children of man your mighty deeds. And then notice the bookends of the psalm. Verse 1, I will extol. Verse 21, let all flesh bless his holy name. Do you see that? God, David's gone from I'm going to do something to let all of the, all flesh, all creation 
See, see, when you've been transformed by the greatness of God, it has an outward trajectory. It has a, it's intended to have an explosive effect. It's not, tend to be, tended to, it's not, it's not designed to be a, a private religion. That's, that's missing the whole point of this psalm, and I might say, the Bible. When you've been transformed by the greatness of God, and some are going to stand on stages and some are going to sit in coffee shops, you are going to say something about the greatness of God. Let me close with this quote from Jim Elliott's journals. If you don't know Jim Elliott, he uh, had a promising career as a pastor and evangelist in the United States. But at the age of 22, he decided um, he, he felt the call of God to go declare the glory of God to nations, people groups, tribes who didn't know anything about God. And so he picked out a particular group in South America known as the Alka Indians. And they never had heard about Jesus. So Jim and four other missionaries, in their efforts to reach this people group, were all killed. And it's a very fascinating story how their wives were the ones who reached them. So it's like these men were the paver stones for their wives to walk across the gospel. It's very powerful. Well, you, you can be sympathetic with Jim's parents. Not super excited about Jim going to this kind of hostile place. And so they told him so. We really wish you'd stay in the States. Got a promising career here. Lots of things you can do here. And Jim's part of his reply, I love this. I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord warned us of when he told his disciples that they must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following the king that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. And he never excluded the family tie. You must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following the king that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. Grieve not then if your sons seem to desert you. But rejoice, rather, seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children? He said that they were a heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy who has his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are their arrows for but to shoot? Now listen to this last statement, so powerful. So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly. All of them straight at the enemy's host. Give thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give thy wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious. And thou and all thou spendest, Jesus will repay. Wow. Here is a person who knows about the greatness of God. All their life, all of their wealth, all of their emotional energy is going to be poured out. Because God is so great. I don't need to supply that for myself. He's going to be my supply. And then there will be a repay. 
that you won't even believe in heaven. You and I are in a glory war. Everyone here is in a glory war. It's not a question of what we're going to worship. Every human being was designed to worship. The question is the object of your worship. And David wants us to understand the greatness of God. And then that can shape the high school girl, the college student, the businessman, the pastor, and winning the glory war, trusting in Christ. Now, Christ knew that we would often forget, and so he says, I'm going to set up this meal so that when you gather together, you do this in remembrance of me, you remember what God has done for you. And so maybe this is a great communion for you to just to remember, okay, God, you are great. It's about you. I'm taking the mirror. I'm getting out of the cage. I'm, I'm moving away, and I'm focusing in on you. So the invitation is open to anybody who is trusted in Christ. If you haven't, then I would encourage you just to sit quietly while people come. The ushers will come get you from your rows. And just ask yourself, what is the object of my worship? What am I hoping it's going to give me in the end? Should I recalculate that? Let's pray together. Lord, on the night you were betrayed, you took a cup and you poured out and said, this is my blood. You took bread and said, this is my body. And you said, I'm giving it to you. May you take these elements and use them for your purposes and for grace to help us fight and succeed in the glory war. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.